Four decades ago, splitting the atom, humans learned, in effect, to unleash on Earth the raging fires of the sun. Today, the world's nuclear arsenals hold the explosive power of over one million Hiroshimas. They are expanding by more than 1,000 warheads. Talking about nuclear war. Nuclear war. Yeah. War. I'm talking about nuclear war. Nuclear, nuclear war. war. A nuclear war. Talking about nuclear war. November 1st, 1983, Washington. Some 500 journalists and scientists filed into a huge ballroom at the Sheraton. It was the second day of a major conference about something called Nuclear Winter. This was a new name for a disturbing idea that a nuclear conflict could alter the planet, that atomic explosions and fires could create so much dust and smoke they would block out the sun. Then the world would plunge into darkness and starvation. Nuclear winter. Many Americans had just read about this scenario in the ordinarily cheerful supplement to their Sunday papers, Parade Magazine. The author was popular astrophysicist Carl Sagan, whose PBS series Cosmos had made him a household name. Sagan had now outed himself in the most public way as an anti-nuclear activist. And that since the early 1950s, the leaders of both nations have been making decisions on world affairs in ignorance of the possible very dire climatic consequences uh, of the use of nuclear weapons. As if to make things seem more dire, ABC was airing a trailer for a film called The Day After, about a nuclear attack on middle America. Apocalyptic fears were reaching a fever pitch in the U.S. In the middle of all this gloom, a prominent Soviet nuclear physicist, Yevgeny Velikov, was invited to attend Sagan's nuclear winter conference via space bridge. Velikov had emerged a rare voice among the Soviet elite, warning of the dangers of nuclear war. He'd even taken part in a previous space bridge with California. Only this time, Velikov brought along friends. He and Soviet colleagues arrived to a studio in Astankana, the main television tower in Moscow, and looked up towards a giant screen. A space bridge was about to beam them to America. 
This kind of exchange was exactly what optimists believed new satellite technology could facilitate. Person-to-person, -person, direct communication across the psychological and geographical barriers of the Cold War. So-called citizen diplomats could ease tensions in a way their government leaders just couldn't. Initial experiments with these links had gone well. Soviet TV producer Pavel Korchagin was involved in them all, but he was about to hit a wall. And uh, we were summoned. Korchagin worked in the Foreign Relations Department at Gosteleradio. His boss now warned him that the space bridge for American and Soviet scientists to discuss nuclear winter, this one might be a setup. Somebody from the Soviet embassy, through diplomatic uh, channels, sent a note to the chairman of Gostel Radio that it's going to be a provocation on the side of the Americans after the show. Between the upcoming space bridge on nuclear winter and the hype around this movie the day after, the Kremlin thought they could smell a trap. Perhaps both events were part of an anti-Soviet media conspiracy. Pavel Korchagin stood in his boss's office listening to this theory unspool. They will talk about this nuclear winter, but uh, then they would say, Russians can say anything on this show, but in reality, they will do something like the day after, where the Russians are nuking United States. Korchagin was ordered to find out more, or Gus Teleradio would cancel the space bridge. The only authority Korchagin could find was an American producer in the control room, a 30-something-year-old named Kim Spencer. Spencer had worked on some earlier space bridges and had come to Moscow to learn more about production. Suddenly, he heard Korchagin whisper in his ear. They said that we heard they were going to carry the day after, and that this is part of that, and this is all a setup, and this is going to be all about the day after. I said, well, I know for sure that that's not going to happen. So we brought him to our boss, and he said, if, if I remember it correctly, let him write it down, like a letter of guarantee that it won't happen. So Kim Spencer, this freelance public TV producer, scribbled out a guarantee on behalf of his nation. Basically, that no one would betray the peaceful intent of this space bridge and commit whatever provocation the Kremlin was imagining. And with that, Korchagin's boss allowed the link to proceed. The Soviet scientists took their seats, and Spencer and Korchagin waited for a signal from the conference in Washington. Tick, tick, zero, one, two, three. Pavel and I are looking at each other like we are dead in both of our countries. It's the end of our careers. And then, bam, this amazing the view sun, of this panel and this, the Earth. background is kind of all dark. Carl Sagan and the Soviet scientists talk for a long time across the satellite link. They compare climate data and models for measuring soot and debris from the megaton blasts. During a lunch break in America, late in the evening in Moscow, the Soviet scientists decide to endorse the nuclear winter scenario as valid, with Veliko leading the way. Nuclear devices cannot be weapons of war or politics, says Velikov. They can only be weapons of suicide. And they were speaking, you know, to the global scientific community who were respecting them and hearing them, you know, and they could see themselves on this big screen with all these scientists out there. And I think that was a transformative moment.
That wouldn't have happened without a space bridge. It is a little strange to think that scientists agreeing on a doomsday scenario could be something hopeful. But in November of 1983, that's what counted as hope. On November 20th, the day after finally aired on ABC. The film depicted the town of Lawrence, Kansas, getting destroyed by a nuclear explosion. The city was in ruins. Its survivors staggered through the rubble in horror. A hundred million Americans tuned in. Parents tried to keep their kids from seeing it. Now, my parents, they wouldn't let me watch. They thought it was too much for an 11-year-old to take in. But at school, it was all anyone could talk about. The film did send a clear message of fear to the American public and to American leaders. President Reagan had seen an early screening and wrote in his diary that it left him greatly depressed. But even the president seemed unsure how best to communicate with his Soviet counterpart, Yuri Andropov. Andropov was just as uncertain. He was also in bad health, struggling to reform an economy that was trying and failing to keep up with the U.S. On the other hand, these new space bridge links seemed to be working. Maybe they were a little weird or hard to fathom, but at least they showed progress. So more and more people on both sides began to embrace the idea of citizen rather than state diplomacy, and that diplomacy would happen on screen with consequences neither side could yet imagine. From Showcase, a production of PRX's Radiotopia, this is Space Bridge. I'm Charles Maines in Moscow. And I'm Julia Barton in New York. This is part three of our story about DIY diplomats who changed the world. Support for this podcast comes from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at carnegie.org. Chapter 1, 1984. During these first days of 1984, I would like to share with you and the people of the world. President Ronald Reagan stood in the East Room of the White House, speaking to the nation about what he intended to do to avert nuclear conflict. He addressed U.S. diplomats in the room, and indirectly, the leaders of the USSR at a European disarmament conference in Stockholm. Reagan had been working on this speech for a while. He spoke about his administration's plan for something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, popularly known as Star Wars because it was supposed to zap nuclear missiles in midair. Star Wars alarmed the Soviets, who thought it violated arms control treaties. But then, nearing the end of his speech, the president got excited about a very different scenario he asked his audience to imagine a Soviet couple who meet an American couple. Just suppose with me for a moment that an Ivan and an Anya could find themselves, say, in a waiting room or sharing a shelter from the rain or a storm with a Jim and Sally, and there was no language barrier to keep them from getting acquainted. Would they then debate the differences between their respective governments? Or would they find themselves comparing notes about their children and 
what each other did for a living. The president wrote this part himself, by hand. During the speech drafting process, this scenario had confused some of his advisors. Waiting room? Ivan and Anya? No language barrier? They couldn't talk Reagan out of it. Ordinary people, he believed, had common sense. Above all, they would have proven that people don't make wars. People want to raise their children in a world without fear and without war. Commentators in the U.S. interpreted this speech as an olive branch to the Soviets. But Soviet leaders greeted the presidents Ivan and Anya with skepticism. The official newspaper Pravda ran a seething satire of the speech. It imagined that Jim and Sally were unemployed, but too ashamed to talk about it, and that the American couple worried the FBI would haul them in for talking with Soviet citizens. The U.S. president's citizen diplomats were imaginary, of course, and easily dismissed. But the Soviet government had already discovered its own real citizen diplomat, a charming 10-year-old American girl named Samantha Smith. As a fifth grader from Manchester, Maine, Smith had written Soviet premier Yuri Andropov, demanding to know if he'd vote for nuclear war. In response, Andropov invited Samantha Smith and her parents to visit the Soviet Union over the summer of 1983. In the USSR, Samantha was treated like a megastar by state media. The entire nation seemingly developed a crush on the young citizen diplomat with her brunette ponytail and her wide smile. Samantha Smith was adorable. One day in a red pioneer scarf, the next in a traditional Russian headdress. She came home to the U.S. more determined than ever to foster world peace. Maybe Andropov sensed his country's need for the hope of youth. He himself was dying of kidney failure. In February 1984, Andropov passed away after only 15 months in office. The Politburo installed someone even older and more feeble in his place. Americans barely even noticed. We were too preoccupied with the presidential election. And so was Samantha Smith. We found former Senator George McGovern of South Dakota at his hotel. In early 1984, Smith reported from the presidential campaign trail for the Disney Channel, asking tough questions about foreign policy. As president, how would the way you deal with the Soviets be different from the way President Reagan does? You know that President Reagan in three years hasn't even talked to the head of the Soviet government. I think that's a big mistake. Um, Smith chased down and interviewed an impressive number of candidates for president in 1984, including former astronaut John Glenn and civil rights organizer Jesse Jackson. And although kids my age can't vote, we can talk to our parents and tell them what we think, and maybe they'll listen. This is Samantha Smith in Washington. She didn't get to interview the incumbent. Ronald Reagan seemed headed for a triumphant renomination. In August 1984, during a mic check before his weekly radio address, the president got a little punchy. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. The Soviet news program Vremya later reported that Reagan's joke sent the USSR into wartime alert. 
trust between the two empires had gotten so bad that a punchline could send it spiraling even lower, and it didn't appear that was going to change anytime soon. Ronald Reagan was re-elected president in a landslide. And the question of how to talk with the Soviet Union was no more resolved than when the year began. Something was about to change in the USSR. The country's great era of stagnation was coming to an end. March 10th, Andropov's replacement to head the Soviet Union, he also died. With the passing of Konstantin Chernyanka, the country now held its third head of state funeral in as many years. Three funerals in three years. It was hard for people not to make jokes. Which walking corpse would the Politburo choose next? Instead, the Politburo installed its youngest member. The new general secretary of the Communist Party was a 54-year-old sapling named Mikhail Gorbachev. I visited the USSR that summer of 1985 as a tourist with my family. I was proud of my few phrases of mangled Russian and perhaps considered myself a citizen diplomat. The Soviet Union impressed me as timeless and unchangeable. I had no idea what was going on under the surface. Earlier that year, Soviet Armenian musician Stas Naman and his band Sveti, or Flowers, released one of the first rock hits of the USSR. A song called Zhelaim Vam Shastya, We Wish You Happiness. Naman's grandfather had been a member of the Politburo, so Stas had certain privileges. But his band could only get this one single released on the USSR's state recording label, Melodia. Um, they were just making money on us, and we sold 60 million copies, more than that. So they got all money. That, so, that sounds fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a regime style. In the summer of 85, Soviets definitely wished for some happiness. Enough with funerals. Their leader was younger than any people could remember. But there would be one more funeral. In late August 1985, Soviets and Americans heard the news that a small plane had crashed. The crash killed everybody on board, including 13-year-old Samantha Smith and her father. A thousand people attended their funeral. Ronald Reagan sent his condolences. The whole Soviet Union seemed to go into shock and mourning. The USSR put Samantha Smith on a stamp. On the darker side, some wondered aloud if the CIA had killed her for her peace activism. This was when Gostelaradio decided to bring back the Space Bridge form in a big way. They would produce a joint broadcast with young Americans in memory of Samantha. Her idealism would be met with a production so idealistic, it's almost blinding. And it represented the culmination of the most hopeful strand of citizen diplomacy, that ordinary children had the moral authority to accomplish what the adults couldn't.
Peace Child had been developed between Soviet and American youth over the summer of 85. The musical was the creation of a British playwright and activist named David Wolcombe. And during a visit to the USSR, he sought the help of none other than Stas Naman to write songs. The Peace Child story is set in the year 2025, when world peace has been attained. The link in December 1985 connects a theater in Moscow to one in Minneapolis. The joint TV production is a cross-cultural triumph. Bilingual songs, a whole production built around the three-second delay between satellite transmissions. And the highlight, a split-screen exchange between an American boy and a Soviet girl. in cosmos. We'd fly out to the limits of the universe, to be great factories in space powered by the heat of the sun. How wonderful, oh, Bobby. Прекрасная мечта. Нет, мечта. It's not a dream. If the United States and the Soviet Union can be friends, it can be real. Я знаю. Не все так просто, Bobby. There are many problems. None that can't be solved if we love. Then the girl in Moscow and the boy in America, they reach out across the cosmos, their hands stretching across the split screen. Stas Naman says they modeled the idea after Michelangelo's creation of Adam. But I, mean, I was not sure it will, we can do it in Space Bridge because, you know, one thing is the art and another thing when you're doing it on a screen and it's like different side of the earth. But as they reached, reached out, the line wasn't quite right. So the boy was a little higher than the girl. Kim Spencer, by now a veteran Space Bridge producer, is back in Moscow working with his Soviet colleagues. So you see this boy and this girl, their hands are going up and down as they're trying to meet. But if you know in the original art, they didn't touch. <laughs> they were close. Are they going to meet? And then they meet. It was, as the Russians say, a spectacle, a performance, a space bridge designed to elicit emotions. And in the Moscow auditorium, presiding above it all, there's a giant photo of Samantha Smith in a traditional Russian headdress, smiling at the connections forged below. Someone else to win In the eyes of all the people Look is much the same the American host is none other than folk singer John Denver. By 1985, these feel-good spectacles seemed like another feature of Soviet life, a small, harmless window looking out on a better world. But someone was about to stick a hand in that window and shove it wide open. They had never heard this kind of criticism of their own leadership on their own network. We'll be right back with Phil Donahue. I suppose I love him most of all when he kneels to kiss the man With his lips upon our mother's breast He makes the strongest
In the mid-80s, Phil Donahue was the undisputed king of American daytime talk TV. I remember being entranced by his silver hair, his clipped speech, his exasperation when someone was going on too long. He moved among his studio audiences with a black wireless microphone, bowing his head sometimes as people talked. He listened intently, but he never lost control. He kept the conversation lively and vigorous. This woman doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to get women, thrown in a paddy wagon. I, huh? Right. Uh, <laughs> see, Look, see how well I speak for this populace here? I think, in, words, in 1985, Donahue got an invitation to co-host a space bridge. A space bridge, I said. Uh, well, what does that mean? Yes, we met Phil Donahue. Wow, isn't that interesting? The invitation came from a small American production company called the Documentary Guild. They wanted to connect two studio audiences, one in the U.S. and one in the USSR, in the format of Donahue's show. There would be simultaneous interpretation each way, and afterwards, each side could edit down its own version for broadcast. Donahue was intrigued. And I checked with several of my friends here in the, in the States. Most of them said, this will be a KGB operation. You are being duped. But Donahue was also intrigued by his proposed co-host, Vladimir Polsner, Posner had already been the Soviet host of several space bridges, including Peace Child. Only now Posner wanted to do something more, something real. So the character of the space bridge did not at all correspond to the reality of the day. Because we on this side believe that you on that side are a bunch of motherfuckers and you think the same thing about us. One second of hearing Posner speak English, and you get it. He's a human space bridge himself. In fact, Posner speaks several languages. His father was Russian, his mother French, and he spent most of his childhood in New York City. I was, you know, your typical American teenager. I was a Yankee fan. Uh, I was indeed a Joe DiMaggio disciple. You know, I sometimes wonder what, what, what would become of me had we not left when I was going on 15. Posner's father, also named Vladimir, had been a screenwriter in New York for MGM Studios. But in the late 40s, with the start of the Cold War and the rise of McCarthyism, Posner's dad faced a big decision. The boss called my father out and said, look, Vladimir, we, uh, you know, we really would like to keep you, but we can't if you're going to be a Soviet citizen. Drop that citizenship. We'll help you become a U.S. citizen, and that'll be fine. And my father, who had his principles, I guess, said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he was fired, blacklisted, and that was the end of that. He couldn't get a job anywhere in the United States. So that's how it all happened. That's how Posner tells the story. There is the awkward fact that his dad's name shows up in KGB files that the National Security Administration had decrypted, Vladimir Sr. had the codename Platon. At any rate, the family wound up first in East Germany, then the USSR, where younger Vladimir Posner had to figure out life in a new country. He later wrote in his memoir that his fluency in English actually made him suspect in the eyes of authorities, though it didn't exactly keep him out of work. Time now for Vladimir Posner with his daily talk. Posner wound up at the English language service of Radio Moscow, 
where he riffed in a weekly column about the positive aspects of life in the Soviet Union, often in contrast with the United States. I wonder how many shelters for the homeless could be built at the cost of one MX missile. That later led to a recurring role as a pro-Soviet commentator on ABC's Nightline. Most of my work was explaining Soviet policy. And I didn't have any problems with that because it was easy for me to say, here's what they're doing, or here's why they're doing it. And I wasn't saying I support it or I don't support it. Was it propaganda? Yes, but it was a different kind of propaganda. Posner was a kind of insider slash outsider. And so in his own way was Phil Donahue. When I accepted the invitation to co-host a space bridge, many, many Americans thought, well, we shouldn't be surprised. He's a liberal. December 29th, 1985. That was the date set for maybe Pinko, Phil Donahue, and maybe propagandist Vladimir Posner to meet across the satellite feed with their audiences and with microphones in hand. And Gus Teleradio producer Pavel Korchagin was involved behind the scenes, as always. So there has to be a live audience in Russia, but the main problem, it has to be picked not by, you know, KGB people in, in the Soviet Union and not by the party officials, but they have to be people, regular people from the streets. Korchagin resisted KGB efforts to select the audience. He went with Donahue's team to factories and other places around Leningrad and found average Soviets. These people didn't know it, but they were about to take part in the most unpredictable space bridge ever. All the links thus far had been, in essence, about the novelty of connection. They were technically difficult, intense, behind the scenes, and more than a little stagey. But now the question wasn't whether ordinary Soviets and Americans could talk. The question was, what would they say? There were about 250 people in Seattle and 250 in the studio in uh, Petersburg, which was then Leningrad, of course, still. And they began by screaming at each other. I really don't trust... Hang on just a moment, please. I was born in that area, and I very much like that city, the city of Gorky. I love that city. You missed the point, sir. It's a very nice country about which songs are written. Excuse me, sir. You missed the point. We are agreed that Gorky is a wonderful city. That is not the question. The question is, why, because someone dissents from Soviet policy, are they immediately called a traitor? That is offensive to a... Phil Donahue comes out punching. And I didn't stop. I was going to prove to the naysayers here in the States that this was legitimate, that, the Soviet Union that this was an uh, honest broadcast. Hold on just one moment, Vladimir, if you will, please. At some point, we were extremely angry at Phil Donahue. No, no. No, please let me make my point. Because he was pushing, you know, to this uh, aggressive behavior on the part of the American side. And our people got frustrated like, oh, you invited us to be friends with Americans and they are hating us. You know, what is happening? We wouldn't come if we knew that it would happen like that. The Soviet audience does look shocked and angry. The American audience is looking bewildered. 
Then there's a remarkable moment. I'm a fisherman in Alaska, and I got a chance to meet some of your... Uh, An American fisherman berates the whole production. I wish this wouldn't be all so political and we could get to know you. I think it's a bad way to start. I wouldn't have come here if I would have known it was going to be this political. I thought I'd get to get a chance to know more of the Russian people. Uh, this show, you've got to realize, is one of controversy, and that's what they're trying to do now. And I really feel unfortunate. I wish we could sit down and meet with... And then a Soviet guy jumps in. Really took the words out of my mouth. What we're doing here? We've been told that for two and a half hours we're going to speak, three, and it's going to be very interesting and very speedy. But there's nothing interesting. I just simply want to get out of here. For a brief moment, these two ordinary dudes have united both crowds against their telegenic masters, Posner and Donahue. After that, the conversation turns reasonable for a while, but it doesn't last. We can have healthful protest without fear of reprisal from government authorities. It is our government. Your government puts on your news. Our government, which stated it. Yes, we do believe in our government. Our government doesn't put on our news. It's privately produced. They can say anything they want. Because I was several times in the U.S. If you're aware of this, the government, in fact, has declared that astonished the first me not be the first and my colleagues strike. how ill-informed Americans are. I think that your government listens, but it doesn't hear. Freedom of speech is wonderful. Freedom of speech is a great thing. But if nobody listens to that speech, then what use is its freedom? There are even some people in this country who feel that you will all serve as mouthpieces for the official party line because to do otherwise might earn you a visit to a psychiatric hospital or perhaps a prison. The space bridge goes on for hours, and the two hosts, they never flag. Posner and Donahue run up and down with microphones on different sides of the planet. They dish it out, and they take it. These were Soviet and American adults talking, not children singing. And they didn't act anything like President Reagan's fictional Ivan and Anya with Jim and Sally. These people argued because they had a lot to argue about. For the first time, a space bridge held a mirror up to both sides. It was uncomfortable, even shocking. May I ask you, Vladimir, how you feel about what tr has transpired? Phil here? Donahue experienced a moment like this with his co-host, Vladimir Posner. They were each summing up their feelings after the long and contentious exchange. I'm very pleased that it's happened. But what happened is indicated very precisely, I think, how difficult it is for us to talk with each other. I don't want to uh, sound flippant. But in the musical, uh, My Fair Lady, there is a, a refrain when Higgins 
is uh, he said in perfect English why can't a woman be more like a man and I thought to myself you son of a gun because you know I had no you know I had it gave me away as a monolingual typical ignorant American yes I think that sometimes we're asking each other why aren't we more like each other why don't you act the same way as we do this is not right and today I think that if we if we've at least understood this on both sides that we are in fact different that each of us have their has its has its own viewpoint and that it's worth something this will be a first step albeit a trembling one but a first step towards understanding and when we understand there'll be normal conversation this argument changed something inside Phil Donahue and it was of course it was several months after the space bridge that I I was rather embarrassed by how arrogant I was that we have the best form of government and isn't it too bad that you more, aren't more like us? But it was Donahue's pushiness, his in-your-face repartee with Posner and the Soviet audience, that broke the Space Bridge format wide open. Donahue had done something no one else had. He turned cross-cultural dialogue into good TV. And that would take citizen diplomacy to a whole new level in both nations. We thank you very, very much for this dialogue. Chapter 3, Donahue's producers cut the Space Bridge down to an hour-long special for broadcast across the U.S. It would be the first time most Americans saw a Space Bridge. Many NBC affiliates ran it January 1st, right after the college football ratings extravaganza, the Orange Bowl. Vladimir Posner had to go through a slightly different process. After his producers edited down the dialogue and translated the English parts, they all sat down to watch it with the head of Ghost Teleradio and other powerful higher-ups. And I figured, well, that's it, you know, we're dead. After watching the edit together, no one knew exactly what to say, whether to defend the space bridge or not. After all, to broadcast this on state TV would mean an endorsement of that pushy American Phil Donahue and his rude questions. On the other hand, things did seem to be changing just a little under Gorbachev. Maybe he wanted to send a signal. And then the guy from the Central Committee starts speaking and he says, I would like to say that what we have just seen is what I consider to be real television. Boom. You know. Wow. The Soviet version aired twice on Gosteleradio's main channel. Posner introduced the whole format to the audience as a dialogue across the cosmos. An estimated 150 million people tuned in. Because never before had they heard their country being criticized by anyone from abroad. Never before had that kind of exchange existed on Soviet television. There is one moment in the Soviet version, however, that's not in the American side, and it's telling. 
свободы передвижения. Vladimir Posner volunteered to answer an American question about whether Soviets were free to travel abroad. And then he went on to explain all the reasonable procedures for Soviets to get so-called exit visas, permission to leave. I'm sure that I, um, I was very, um, how should I put this, um, aware of the danger of saying the wrong thing. In truth, Posner had been trying to get an exit visa for decades. He had family in France, friends in America, and the Soviet authorities would not let him out. Posner's defense of Soviet emigration policy was, in his own case, bizarre, or maybe strategic. Because the space bridge with Donahue turned Posner from a relatively unknown propagandist to a genuine television celebrity. A few months after the citizen summit, Posner got an invitation that the Soviet authorities could not refuse. It was a chance for Posner to come to America and appear on his new friend Phil Donahue's show. Posner flew from Moscow to JFK and finally got to enter the city where he'd grown up. And a limousine from my program picked him up so he's sitting in the back of this glorious car. And as he made his way into New York City from the airport, he looked through the windshield and he, from the back seat, and he saw the skyline of Manhattan. And he wept. Vladimir Posner would visit Stuyvesant, his old high school. He'd pay off a $1 library fine that had been bothering him for decades. He did all of this on camera. American journalists were fascinated with him and his story. But not everyone loved him or the space bridge he co-hosted. In the most fundamental sense, we do not speak the same language. Too often, we speak the language of our governments, wrote one reviewer for the Chicago Tribune. New York Times critic John Corey had harsh words for the Citizen Summit and the idea that diplomacy should be entertaining. Corey ended his Space Bridge review with this sarcastic kicker. It'll be terrific when they enlist Big Bird. Actually, a Muppet Space Bridge is not beyond the realm of imagination. It's time to get things started. That's next. Outside the gates of the Kremlin. Then the consultations began. They were carried out by both sides with the utmost in diplomatic delicacy and tact. Space Bridge is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. It's produced by Julia Barton and Charles Maines. With Julia Alsop, Samira Tazari, DJ Kashmir, and Paulus Van Horn. Sam Greenspan is our editor. Our Russian content partner is Arzumas Academy. Music by Andrei Konovalov, Rombix, and Griffin Jennings. Graphic design by Dennis Landon. Julie Shapiro is the executive producer of Radiotopia. Descript provided tape transcription. Special thanks to the Carnegie Corporation of New York, to Kim Spencer and Evelyn Messenger for audio of the Nuclear Winter Summit, to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Peace Child International. 
and to Ed Wierzbowski, Citizen Summit producer extraordinaire, along with King TV Seattle. And finally, a hat tip to jazz great Sun Ra. You may have noticed we sampled a couple lines from his 1982 classic, Nuclear War. Be sure and check out the original. It's a motherfucker. It's gonna blast you so high. It's gonna blast you so high. Up in the sky. Right in the sky. You can kiss your ass. You can kiss your ass. Goodbye. 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 Farewell. Farewell.